call is being recorded. Hello, and welcome to my show, Searching for Integrity. My name really is John Smith, and I'm searching for people with integrity. Why? Because our country suffers from IDD, Integrity Deficit Disorder. Today, we have a special feature regarding my book, Embracing the Abyss, a true story of unknowingly becoming part of a fraud scandal, receiving a presidential pardon, and being surprised by a spiritual awakening. I have a number of requests from my listeners asking that I read more chapters from my book, Embracing the Abyss. It's an easy read. Only 207 pages. Some readers read it in one sitting, about four to five hours. So I'll begin this show with my book. And my book begins with a prologue, the prologue. It's called The Boy. The boy was only three when he and his parents went to visit his grandparents, Pap and Mammy. They lived in the country in Southern Kentucky where they were sharecroppers. On the first night at Pap and Mammy's place, the boy and his father fell asleep in the same bed. When his father got out of bed, the boy woke up. Where are you going, Daddy? Going out to the barn to pee, Johnny. I'll be right back. The boy felt it fell into a deep sleep. <clears throat> and he was comfortable in the knowledge that his daddy would be there for him through the night. When the boy awoke the next morning, he couldn't find either of his parents. Pap and Mammy broke the news that they had left for a short vacation, taking his baby sister with them. The boy was completely crushed and began crying. He sobbed harder and harder uncontrollably until he could barely catch his breath. Soon he was hysterical. Pap and Mammy tried consoling the boy, even asking the boy's favorite uncle over to try and cheer him up, but to no avail. The boy had become inconsolable, sobbing and stumbling. Barely seeing through swollen eyes, the boy could not understand why his parents had left without him. Was he no longer loved? The boy wasn't sleeping much, hardly any. His weeping and wailing were nonstop. Pap and Mammy begged for belief. His parents cut short their vacation after two days. They returned and rescued him. Upon leaving Pap and Mammy's house, the boy began a long journey, a life sentence of figuring out what he had done wrong that had caused his parents to leave him behind. Next session segment, segment is the introduction. It was an opening speech given to North Texas State University students, now University of North Texas. And 
full of uh, of uh, finance people, students, accounting primarily, and a big auditorium. Lots of people crammed in there today. So I'll begin an opening speech. My name really is John Smith. Three days from now, I'll be standing in federal court before U.S. District Judge Robert Maloney. He sentenced to be sentenced on a charge of fraud for my involvement as a high-ranking officer of Vernon Savings and Loan. I want to share with you how this happened to me so that you might remember should it come close to happening to you. Perish the thought. In some respects, as I look back, I still don't believe it, but I live with it every day. I don't have any other choice. How could I have been so stupid? This is not a story about your small town banker that dips into the cash drawer every now and then, for himself or his girlfriend. It's not a story about the guy who worked in the back room and had never been promoted the guy who was mad at his boss, mad at the whole world, who thought he deserved a self-reward by socking away a little cash every chance he got. Savings and loans at the beginning of the 1980s were a struggling industry. They were not the same as banks because they were primarily limited to making loans for home ownership. The model worked by offering low interest rates on long-term mortgage loans. Prospective homeowners who couldn't find or afford a loan from a regular bank would come to an SNL and get a cheaper mortgage. But my early 19, by the early 1980s, <clears throat> the financial playing field was changing. Interest rates had risen double digits, meaning SNLs had to pay depositors more for their funds. This left SNLs in the impossible situation of paying double digits on deposits while offering only single digits on home loans. Federal regulators were searching for solutions to this problem. They began looking at real estate entrepreneurs. The real estate industry, industry in Texas had been successful. After all, real estate developers with large balance sheets appeared to know what they were doing and they had significant experience with real estate loans. The regulator's theory was that if these real estate entrepreneurs were able to borrow money, then they ought to be able to lend money. And that turned out to be a big joke. So the federal regulations for savings and loans were changed to allow, allow ownership of SNLs by real estate developers and entrepreneurs and their state commissioners reviewed and approved the transaction, of course. This listening, loosening of the reins or deregulation brought the entrepreneurs aboard and it worked well for a while. But within two to three years, the plan went awry, primarily because of greed leading to fraud. The regulator's decision to deregulate would ultimately produce a moral hazard. 
and what's known as zombie financial institutions. There was this was this stupidity, and yes, on my part too. I should have known. I should have looked more, but also a lack of awareness and consciousness snuffed out by a plethora of pretense and a huge deluge of denial. I consider myself a regular guy. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee, to God-loving parents from the country in Tennessee and Kentucky. I grew up in Oklahoma City and then moved when I was a high school sophomore to Dallas, Texas. I gave up my high school wrestling career. In 1965, the summer before my senior year, my friend's dad got us jobs at the Texas School Book Depository Warehouse. In case you don't remember, in 1963, JFK was shot by Lee Harvey Oswald from a sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository office building. Our work in the warehouse consisted of packing boxes of textbooks to be sent to various schools and districts across the Texas. One day I was given the task of delivering an envelope to an office in the TB, TSBD building where the shooting had occurred. After delivering the item, I thought I might have a look around and I took the freight elevator upstairs to the sixth floor. There were no barriers or cautions or warnings that would have prevented me from exploring. So I proceeded to the corner of the large room to the window where Lee Harvey Oswald sat and waited. I must say it was a bit spooky. From the looks of it, that corner of the room was left the way it was found. I remember seeing chicken bones and assumed that Lee Harvey Oswald had had something to eat while waiting on JFK's limousine to pass by. In front of the window was a desk that he probably used to aim his rifle. For some fun, I decided to put a chair on top of the desk, discovering a round three foot long piece of wood. I picked it up and put it across my lap as I sat in the chair on top of the desk in front of the window. There were tourists outside on the grassy knoll and it wasn't but a few minutes before I was noticed by crowd gathering below. As the crowd began to grow, many of them started pointing it towards me. I realized I needed to get my ass out of there. Without delay, I was in the elevator, having a downward ride, goosebumps covering both of my arms. When I got back to the warehouse, my friends asked me how it went. I told them about the chair on the desk I got a big kick out of that. I guess I did too. When I graduated from high school, I assumed I knew everything there was to know about college. I had finished with the TSBD and was now working 50 hours a week at Collins Radio, a large manufacturer of electronic devices for the Vietnam War. I knew then that the most important thing to me was the 66 GTO convertible that I had. So I decided that I was going to get into college and get out with the least amount of trouble. My first semester, I signed up for 21 hours of classes, 
plus a lab, a tribe caringly, that only on Mondays and Wednesdays, Fridays, could I continue working and making money. I think I made it past Halloween, but I'm not real sure. That time in my life was somewhat of a blur as I lived it. The one thing I do know is that after I dropped out of college in the fall of 1966, only a few months from starting, I got to work more hours at college radio. The draft lottery was in effect, and I probably watched too many John Wayne movies, because even though I enjoyed working at Collins Radio, I volunteered to go into the Army. I wanted to go to Vietnam, and I did. I am a decor decorated veteran of Vietnam. When I returned to the States after Nam, I became a teacher in the Army. <laughs> I smile when I write that, because what I mean by teacher is that I was a drill sergeant. You know, the soldiers with the smoking and the bare hats. Hey, don't knock it. I was the honor graduate of my drill sergeant school. After my discharge from the Army, I returned to Denton, Texas, wanting another chance at college. I didn't know what I wanted to study, but I knew I wanted a college degree. I married my first wife only three days after departing the army. And we had twin sons born during the first fall semester. The GI Bill and three or four part-time jobs supported us. I never knew how important $210 a month was until then. Now it's almost as though I'm reliving that prospect of poverty again. Not much is left over these days after the legal fees are paid. <clears throat> when I was a college student, my second go-around, I became the attorney general of the Student Government Association. I was the guy who interpreted the rules and matters of law. I was the one with the big panel that sent, spent the meetings at the back of the room as the sergeant at arms. It was my senior year and I still hadn't chosen a major. I had completed almost all the hours necessary in the School of Business, but hadn't chosen a specific business major. The time had come. I could put it off no longer. I recall going around to the different departmental offices, stopping in to visit, asking them why I should choose their department for my major. One Saturday morning, I walked into the Department of Accounting office and met a man named Herschel Anderson. I didn't know him from Adam, but I soon found out that Dr. Herschel Anderson was a man of quick wit with a large desire to help others. I didn't know, I don't know how he did it so early in the morning, <laughs> but he had one of those great big cigars in his mouth and he could talk at the same time too. He asked if I had taken accounting yet. I answered yes. He said both accounting one and two. I again said yes. What were your grades, he asked. I replied, A's. He replied, both one and two. I said yes. He paused, his head dropping as he looked through the floor. 
I was somewhat startled when all of a sudden he looked at me with utter frustration and confusion, like I was crazy. He said, are you kidding me? What is wrong with you, boy? A county is your ticket to the big show. You can't do any better than the county. You can't make A's in the county and walk away from it. His voice grew louder and louder. This is the bus you want to be on. If you think about all that stuff the other departments offer, you know they're nuts. They get part-time jobs. You're done with those other departments. In that span of 10 minutes, span of 10 minutes or so, Herschel made his message clear to me. If you do this, then from this, you can do anything else if you want. You can do all of that other stuff when you want to. If you choose that other stuff now, you're going to have a tough time with this road if you change your mind. Herschel was candid, and his message poured from his heart straight into mine. Of course, I'm glad now for what he said. I believed him then and believe it now. I was one lucky guy to have stumbled into Dr. Anderson that Saturday morning, big cigar and all. He was quite a man and character. I maintained a 4.0 GPA and graduated magna cum laude with a degree in accounting. I got into an argument with the people in my administration about why I shouldn't have been classified summa cum laude the higher honor for my 4.0. They then reminded me of the four deadly withdrawal failings. I had my first time at college. Surprise. I said, oh, those still count? Well, shut my mouth. <laughs> oh, boy. When the recruiters came to campus, I interviewed and received offers of employment but I accepted the one that would be the best to provide the best post-college education. I chose Alfred Maroney and Company, the largest regional public accounting firm in the Southwest. I spent five years at Alfred Maroney and Company, AM and Co., and feel fortunate that I got the education I wanted. With them, I was able to work with a variety of clients in a variety of businesses, large and small. I dealt with audits, all types of taxation, including individual, corporate, and estate planning projections, as well as partnerships. I was also involved with the Computer Services Department, also known as Management Information Services. It was almost too good to be true. I believed I was being prepared for something much more important, possibly a career requiring collective experience for advancement and success. For most of my life, when my head was on right, my intuition provided a flow of information that kept challenging what I thought I could be and what I ultimately would be. My mindset was usually geared for success, and I spent most of my waking minutes analyzing how to make these thoughts become reality. I enjoyed public accounting. At AM and Co., there was a great deal of camaraderie, respect for each other, and good friendship. I received the profession 
the professional education I saw. I realized that your college education is your foundation. The critical part of learning takes place out there in the real world, but you can't get there unless you go through basic training in the college. Funny how that works. After five years of public accounting, I committed the ultimate sin. I went to work for a client for bigger money. I learned a lot about closely loaned, owned family businesses. Namely, if you find yourself on the wrong side of the family that controls the business, you're going to be history sooner than later. After working five years straight in public accounting in the ensuing two years, I had four jobs. Finally, I found a job with Dante, a startup construction development firm. I felt lucky. Dante had plans to build condos in Dallas-Fort Worth, DFW area, Louisiana, and Florida. I recall thinking that this was a company where things were going to be done right. I worked hard. I'd been given a new opportunity in something I knew about, which was real estate with taxation, partnerships, and corporate reporting. These are the things that I had cut my teeth on in public accounting. I was counting on taking a large step upward after proving my capabilities. I felt comfortable and confident that I could do this, even though uncertainty often interrupted my thought process of a real world education. But the lessons I would learn weren't the ones I was expecting. Those came only through the abyss. The abyss being a part of your soul. The abyss is not something you recognize right away. It's part of you that you don't come in and touch with very often. It seemed unreachable at first until you feel its presence and know it's you. I'm talking about my own abyss, which is a, a portal to my soul. So if I choke along these lines, that's the reason. It's, it resides in the area inside you that's parked away in a safe place, resting under a do not disturb sign. This is your own sacred ground for times when you reach the point where you can no longer answer to yourself. When you've exhausted all of the efforts at rationalization, this is the time when you need something deep from within, something strong to support yourself. It's the place where you engage in the ultimate struggle for truth, where you're aching for lasting answer. Often in an attempt to, in an attempt to expedite things, you may be able to disguise the true answer the real answer by fooling yourself with a quick fleeting fix. You do this because you are trying to protect the image of you, the one you have of yourself. You're trying to protect your self-image, the unstained version of yourself that you still covet and caress. If you have not recently traveled into and through your soul for a visit, Know that the abyss, as gatekeeper, may not notice you at first. 
You identify with and respond to karma at the abyss. Your depth and breadth of consciousness increases, leading to a greater awareness that protects you. Sincerely bestow the breath from deep within you. Grasp the abyss, embrace it, and hold on for dear life. Chapter number one begins, and the title of it is The On Deck Circle. For those of you that are baseball uh, people, that you know that being the On Deck Circle, you're the next guy to be up. The date for this chapter is Dallas, Texas, October 13, 1988. And I will continue this, chapter number one, soon, probably this coming week, because I enjoy reading, going over all of this again. It's good. It's real good. And I want to thank everybody for my stumbles here as I read it. Didn't mean to. I uh, understand that the people are interested and I comply. I want to thank you leaders, Lance leaders. You are leaders out there as well if you're interested in integrity. Thank you listeners for tuning in to my searching for integrity. So long and happy trails to all. <laughs>